You know, as we get started, I just want to ask you to reflect honestly on this question. What are you most grateful to God for? What are you most grateful to God for? I'm just going to go ahead and assume that we have a group of people here today that um, actually are grateful. Uh, Billy Graham said that a spirit of thankfulness is one of the most distinctive marks of a Christian whose heart is attuned to the Lord. And um, I think he's right about that. I think if your heart is attuned to the Lord, that, that spirit of thankfulness is something that just wells up within you. And uh, so if you're struggling today to be grateful for something or for, for anything at all, um, that's another message for another day, all right? I'm going to assume that you've got some gratitude. But the question is, for those of us with that spirit of thankfulness, because our hearts are attuned to the Lord, what is it that triggers our gratitude? What are we typically thankful for on kind of an everyday basis? And I gave that question some thought this week and just kind of reflected and, and kind of pondered it. And I think I would summarize my answer this way. That most of our gratitude revolves around God's provision in our lives. Most of our gratitude revolves around God's provision. When God gives us something we want or something we need, we respond by saying thank you, just like we teach even our little toddlers to do. And so, you know, thank you, God, for this meal. Thank you, God, for providing that car. Thank you for this home that we have. Thank you for just a wonderful family vacation. Thank you for the new job. Thank you for the raise at work. Thank you for restoring my health after this time of sickness. Thank you for keeping me safe on that, that trip I took. Thank you for helping me out of some sticky situation. And on and on it goes. You get the picture. So I think it's safe to say, by and large, that our thanksgiving is tied rather tightly to our own well-being. And I don't want you to misunderstand me here. Uh, it's appropriate for us to thank God for these things, for his provisions, for these blessings. We know from Scripture that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, and, and we should express our gratitude for him for all of it. But the, the truth of the matter is this that what I most consistently thank God for reveals what I most highly value. What I most consistently thank God for reveals what I most highly value. So, if I reserve my most consistent gratitude for material blessings, I think it would seem to indicate that what I most highly value is my personal welfare, my personal happiness. And... I just got to tell you, the coming to that realization this week hit me pretty hard. Because as I reflected on what I tend to give thanks to God for, I was really forced to come to the conclusion that I far too frequently value Dan Brubaker. Sad to say, I most often am most grateful for the things that most benefit me. And I think I'm probably not alone in that. And that's why at a first glance, the Apostle Paul's expressions of gratitude may seem a little bit foreign to us. It's almost like his, his gratitude is just like it's from a different planet, a different universe. Because he doesn't focus on the stuff that we often prize. Instead, Paul gets excited when he sees evidence of the Lord at work in people's lives. He, he repeatedly thanks God for signs of spiritual growth. In fact, you can do a check on this. He starts every one of his letters with the exception of Galatians in the same way. 
expressing thanks for what he sees God doing in the lives of the recipients of those letters. And I want to encourage us this morning to be about the same thing. The Colossians 3 verse 1, it instructs us to seek the things that are above. And that basically means that we should value and prioritize what God values and prioritizes. We we need to seek the things that are above. What, What matters to him should matter to us. What's on his agenda needs to be on our agenda. And let me tell you something. God puts a high premium on spiritual transformation. He's all about life change. From the the moment we trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to the moment when we see him face to face in eternity, that entire time, his entire plan is to make us more like his son. The theological word for that is sanctification. And and when I see that God is doing this this sanctifying work in, in people's lives, in my own life, my, my heart should just be bursting with gratitude. When I see him shaping me and shaping others into the image of Christ, it should fire me up. That's the big idea today, that I, I should thank God for evidence of gospel growth. And we're going to look at one of the passages I could have chosen from any number of Paul's uh, letters where he does this same thing. But we're going to look at him doing this in 2 Thessalonians. And I hope you're already there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And um, look at verses three and four today. And the, just these two short verses, Paul highlights three evidences of gospel growth that should cause us to well up with thanksgiving. All right, are you there? Second Thessalonians 1, follow along as I read. And Paul writes, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Just before we dive in and study this together, let's just bow our heads and ask God to speak through his word as he is so faithful to do. Father God, we thank you for this time with your word open before us. And God, we thank you that um, you've made some promises about this book that are not true of any other book. God, it's, it's living, it's life-giving. God, you promise that uh, the purpose that you have set out for it, you will accomplish that through it. And so God, we come to it. We come hungry, we come ready, we come uh, needing your sustenance today. God, wanting you to teach us and to correct us, to shape us, to equip us. And so, Father, as you do, every time we open it with that spirit, we pray that you would do again and that you would do it for your glory. And we pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Notice uh, what Paul writes at the outset. He says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, as is right. What he's basically saying is, listen, guys, I'm not trying to sweet talk you. I'm not trying to flatter you. But when I reflect on all that God is doing, I I just can't help but to thank him. There's no other reasonable option. Nothing else makes sense but for me to just to praise God because I see him at work in your life. And why is it that Paul is so grateful? Well, first, and uh, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. The first reason is because of their flourishing faith. He's grateful because of their flourishing faith. This is one of the evidences of gospel growth. You see it right there in verse three. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, as is right, 
Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly. Your faith is growing abundantly. Other translation says your faith is growing phenomenally. It's, it's flourishing. And now it's interesting that Paul has previously addressed this very subject with the Thessalonian believers. You see the, the top of your book here, it says 2 Thessalonians. That means there's actually a 1 Thessalonians, right? And so this isn't the first correspondence he's had with them. And in his first letter, he writes these words, and this will be on the screen. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And so back in 1 Thessalonians, he, he starts by commending them for these early signs of their faith. But then just actually a couple sentences later, he also points out that they still have room for improvement. But he says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So don't miss this, all right? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul praises the church for their fledgling faith, all right? It's just, he sees evidence of it. But he also petitions the Lord that it would increase. And now here in 2 Thessalonians, written just several months, maybe a year later, he rejoices in answered prayer. He thanks God for their flourishing faith, not fledgling anymore, flourishing faith. Isn't that a fantastic thing? I mean, essentially, Paul's saying this. He says, listen, guys, I don't know if you know this, but I'm keeping tabs on you. I, I'm getting reports, and like I've been observing your spiritual progress over this time, and I just got to tell you, your faith is awesome. It's growing like crazy. Like, keep it up. It's so wonderful. Like, can you just imagine how encouraging that would be for the Thessalonians? Right? They get this letter from Paul. It's read to them publicly. And he's just basically just kind of patting them on the back in public. And I don't know if you've ever received a card or a, you know, an email or a text like that from someone that you hold in high regard, maybe a, you know, a Sunday school teacher or a youth worker, a small, a small group leader, your parent, close friend, maybe a pastor even. And in that note, that person openly thanked God for the signs of gospel growth in your life. They said, listen, I can see God is doing that in you, and I just want you to know it's a great thing. Anybody ever receive something like that? I've received a few. I've written a few like that. And I just want to tell you, that is a blessing. And that's just what Paul is doing here for the Thessalonians. And it's, I want to tell you, it's a great lesson for us all. And I just encourage you, why don't you try it out on someone this week? Someone that's kind of in your orbit that you observe regularly. Take some time to tell them in some way, I just wanted you to know, I am thanking God because I am seeing this in your life. I'm telling you, they'll never forget it, all right? It's life-changing. Now, <clears throat> what do we mean when we talk about their faith flourishing? What, what does it really mean that their faith was flourishing, that it was growing abundantly, as Paul says? Well, for <clears throat> some time here around Harvest, we've had a kind of a working definition of faith, and I know some of you know this. Now, it's going to be on the screen. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Why don't we just lift up our voices and say that together, right? Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Now, there's a, 
a, a fantastic example of this in the Old Testament. Uh, you may remember the story of Abraham. And he was a guy that God called to be the father, the, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. And God made some just truly incredible promises to Abraham. He, he told him that he would have descendants as, as numerous as the stars in the heaven and the, the sand on the seashore. Do you remember that? And you got to keep in mind, Abraham, when he received that promise, was a senior citizen. All right? He was an aged man. He had no children, and his wife, Sarah, was also well beyond her childbearing year. She was barren. So just imagine receiving that word from the Lord. I mean, Abraham had every reason to be filled with unbelief. He had every reason to like dismiss this idea as just like totally crazy. But I want you to listen to what the apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter four as he reflects back on that incredible story about Abraham. This is what Paul says about Abraham and his faith. He says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. In other words, there's no hope, but he still believed that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as, as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, Abraham believed God's word. He received God's word directly and he believed it. And he trusted that the Lord would come through in some way, even though he, he didn't understand it, even though the situation seemed hopeless, didn't make sense. And so he chose to walk in humble obedience and to do what God called him to do. He had a flourishing faith. And the same can be true of us. And so the question might be like, what, what does that kind of faith look like in everyday life? What would a flourishing faith, a faith that believes the word of God and, and acts upon it, what does that look like in our lives? I just, I jotted down a, a couple of ideas here and maybe one of these will intersect with your life today. Faith is believing God's promise that he'll never leave me or forsake me. And, and so even when I feel utterly abandoned, I'll choose, I'll choose to live each moment with an attentiveness to his presence and to his love. Faith is believing that God knows best about marriage. After all, he created it, right? And so even when I feel lonely or left behind, I'll choose to pursue a future spouse who'll share my convictions and encourage my walk with God, not lead me astray. Faith is believing God's promise that he'll meet all my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so even when I feel hopeless, even when it all seems helpless, I will choose to be confident of his provision and care. Faith is believing the truth of God's word that everything I have is actually his. And so even when I feel stretched financially, even when I, I don't feel like being generous, I'll choose to give my first and my best to God's work as an act of humble worship. Faith is believing God's promise that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. 
And so even when I don't understand what he's up to, even when I can't see it from my limited perspective, what, what he's trying to accomplish, I'm going to choose to trust that his ways and his timing are perfect. Friends, faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it. Acting. No matter how I feel. Knowing that God promises a good result. And Paul encourages the Thessalonians because they're flexing their faith muscles. They're they're placing themselves, or perhaps they're being placed in positions that require them to trust God implicitly. And through it all, their their faith is growing abundantly. Their faith is growing phenomenally. It's, It's flourishing. And so here's what I want you to think about. Is your faith flourishing today? Do you think about what we've talked about and what faith means, what it looks like? Would you honestly say that your faith is flourishing today? And if, if it isn't, what's the holdup? Why not? I, I can tell you for a fact this morning, it isn't because of any deficiency on God's part. The lack of a flourishing faith isn't because God is withholding. I, I mean, he... He is all about, his total agenda is to make you more like Jesus. And so just stop fighting, start surrendering and partner with him in that process. Ask him, God, would you give me a faith? Would you help grow my faith? Step into it. Ask him to help you to trust his word and to act upon it. But maybe, maybe you're sitting here and saying, you know, actually, I, like, not being proud here, but actually, I, I'm seeing God flourish my faith. I'm seeing him bring that kind, of, uh, that kind of testimony into my life and into maybe some of the people around me. I just want to urge you, would you pause? Would you drop to your knees and would you give thanks to God? This is an evidence of gospel growth. This is an evidence that he is at work in your life, that he is active, that he loves you, that he is carrying out his purposes in your life. He's accomplishing his sanctifying work, spiritual transformation. I'm telling you, there's nothing more important to the Father than making us more like his son. So I should thank God for evidence of gospel growth. And and the Apostle Paul is providing a, a wonderful example of that here in this passage. Not only does he recognize the Thessalonians for their flourishing faith, but he also underscores their abounding love. That's the second evidence. Jot that down. They're abounding love. Look at the rest of verse three. It says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, because the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It says your love is increasing. It's abounding. And again, this is like the same thing with the faith. These are not Paul's first comments about their love. In the, in the first letter he wrote to them, first Thessalonians, he applauds them for their love one toward another. Again, see these words there on the screen. He said, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Almost sounds like they've got it figured out, doesn't it? Like, I don't, I don't even need to write you about this. You, you, you're showing it, you're doing it. But clearly they haven't arrived because he adds these comments elsewhere in that same letter. He says, but we urge you brothers to do this Speaking of love, more and more. It's the very next next sentence. We urge you to do it more and more. And he also says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. 
And so again, now in, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul, Paul is, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul is celebrating an answer to this very prayer that he had prayed. He, he thanks God for bringing about this gospel growth, for causing their love for one another to abound. The idea of that word increasing is, is something that, that, that spreads out rapidly and that disperses widely. And it, it kind of brings to mind some of those video uh, footages of like those surging floodwaters. You know, those things where it's just it, like it overwhelms anyone and anything in its way. It can't be stopped. It can't be contained. That's what Paul is saying about the Thessalonians' love. If you're wondering, the same should be true for every genuine Christ follower. Uh, scripture is clear over and over that a commitment to Jesus should always lead to authentic love for another. That they go hand in hand. It's, it's part of discipleship. And so, what, again, what does an abounding love look like? What does it look like to have this kind of authentic, abounding love for those around us? Well, we could say so much and Books have been written on this, and many verses are in the God's word about this. But I just want to offer three very brief thoughts that I think can flesh out just a bit of a biblical theology, a biblical framework for our love, what God calls us to. You may want to write these down. The first thing is this. Love is a do thing more than a feel thing. Love is a do thing more than a feel thing. In other words, love is more about action than it is about emotion. And most people, if we're just being honest here, when we hear the word love, we think almost automatically about feelings and about sentiment. And if we're talking about marital love, we think about romance and about passion. And get, don't get me wrong, none of that's wrong. It's just insufficient. It's just insufficient. It comes up short. Biblical love is far more than an emotion. Because regardless of how I feel at any given moment, God calls me to choose to choose to be loving, to, to put love in practice in ways that are evident and tangible to those around us. And um, that's actually kind of the gist of 1 Corinthians 13. We often refer to that as the love chapter and it's read at weddings and many other special occasions, but it's really a place where Paul unpacks the do side of love. Just look at these words. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And did you notice? These are actions to be carried out, not feelings to be conjured up. These are things we're supposed to do. These are ways we're supposed to behave. It's not about just how we feel. Love is a do thing more than a feel thing. Secondly, love is a you thing more than a me thing. Love's a you thing more than a me thing. In other words, love is about pursuing the good of another rather than the good of self. I think sometimes if we're, if we're being really truthful, even when we demonstrate love like we've been talking about, even if we do 1 Corinthians 13, even that can come from mixed motives. And instead of our actions being all about the other person, we can fall prey to a, like a what's in it for me mindset. 
I, I'm going to love you in this way, but like, I'm hoping it's coming back in some way, right? Friends, that, that, that is not love according to God's standard. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So how exactly is it that God loved us? Was it by pursuing his own agenda? Oh, you know from Philippians chapter 2 that, that Jesus set that aside in submission to the Father. And, and here we're reading in Ephesians 5 that he sacrificed himself in an ultimate way. He offered up his life on the cross as a payment for our sins. We've, we've remembered that this morning in communion. We've, we've sung about his overwhelming, his never-ending, his reckless love. Now, we may not be called to literally die in someone else's place. And I, for one, hope not. But we are called to walk in love with the same sacrificial spirit. To, to, to outdo one another in service and to set aside my desires and my preferences and to look for ways to esteem and to encourage those around me, even when it costs. That high calling to put others ahead of ourselves, that is biblical love. It's a you thing more than a me thing. Third, I want you to hear this. Love is a vertical thing before it's a horizontal thing. Love like we've been talking about is, is tough to put into practice. I mean, let's just be honest. If love were easy, everybody would be getting it right, right? If love were easy, we'd all be doing it. And so this third idea gets to the heart of how we can actually love others the way the Bible lays out for us. 1 John chapter 4 tells us that love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We love because he first loved us. In other words, what John's saying there is that it's only when we acknowledge and embrace God's love for us as shown through his son Jesus. That's what, that's what I mean when I talk about vertical, about getting this relationship right when we receive the love of God in Christ Jesus. It starts with the relationship with him. It's only when we get that right that when that's been settled that we can reflect that same kind of love in our horizontal relationships to one another. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't just even pause for a moment and ask you, have you received and have you responded to the love of God in Christ? Are you today are you absolutely certain that you are forgiven and free through the blood, the shed blood, the broken body of Jesus? And if not, I just invite you to open up your heart to him even now. That is the first and fundamental step in getting love right. Because you see, love is a vertical thing before it's a horizontal thing. And I think that's, some of what Paul has in mind when he's thanking the Thessalonians for their love, for thanking God and saying, like, guys, your love's increasing, it's abounding. And so here's, again, my question for you this morning. Is your love abounding? Is your love abounding? Because if you're a child of God, then his singular focus is to shape you more and more into the image of his son. And Jesus is the greatest example of love the world has ever known. 
And so if your love isn't abounding at this time, why don't you just ask him to overwhelm you again with the reality, the awesomeness, the wonder of his love. And that it help you to walk in that same love to others. I'm telling you, he will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. Okay, maybe, maybe today you'd say, you know what? I see signs of progress. My, my love is increasing. My love is abounding. I, I can see how God is making headway in that area of my life. Celebrate that fact. Celebrate the fact that he is in the business of spiritual transformation. Is what I most consistently thank God for reveals what I most highly value. And I hope, I hope and I pray that gospel growth is at the top of your list. You are grateful for what God is doing. The Apostle Paul mentions a third spiritual quality, a third evidence of gospel growth that he observed in the Thessalonians. Their flourishing faith, their abounding love, and now this, their unwavering perseverance. Their unwavering perseverance. Look at verse four. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Don't miss this. Not only is, is Paul thanking God for the signs of growth that he sees in their lives and then encouraging them by writing about it personally in this letter that would be read in front of them, but he's also boasting about their progress to all kinds of other churches. It's like Paul's going around the ancient world working in all these churches and he's just telling everybody he knows, hey guys, you need to check out the Thessalonians. Like, you got to hear about these guys, what examples they are. I mean, Paul's just going around and he's bragging on them and he's praising God. And what he's praising is their unwavering perseverance, their, their steadfast endurance, their commitment to press on in spite of adversity. And notice that their adversity is coming in two forms, two basic forms. It's true of us as well. Persecutions and afflictions. The persecutions are the assaults that are made on believers specifically because of their faith in Christ. And the Thessalonian church was facing great persecution. You can read more about that in Acts 17 if you'd like to look at that later. Here in Canada, we still face little, if any, real persecution for our beliefs, at least for now. That may change. That day may be coming. God keep our land glorious and free. Amen? But many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, even today, even in this moment, are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, imprisoned, tortured, beaten, even martyred. Afflictions, that, that, that's a little more common to us. That's the kind of the general pressures and, and burdens of life. Some of your translations, if you have another a version may call them trials or hardships. And this is the stuff like the financial pressures and health concerns and job stresses and family problems and all and on and on it goes. Without a doubt, the Thessalonians were dealing with those same things too, right? Life hasn't changed all that much in 2,000 years. They still had family issues and financial pressures back in the days of the early church too. And you know what those look like in your life? And Paul thanks God that in the midst of such challenging circumstances, in the face of persecutions and afflictions, the Thessalonians are unwavering in their perseverance. And that word 
translated in our ESV as steadfastness. Do you see it there? You may want to circle that word, steadfastness. That is, we don't talk a lot about Greek words here, but this is a very special Greek word. It's the word hupomene. And if you've been around Harvest, uh, we've talked about this word a number of times. It has a lot of meaning for us. And it's a term that appears about 30 times in the New Testament. And it packs a significant punch. Hupomene is actually the combination of two words, two Greek words. Hupo, which means under, and mone, which means to remain. Hupomene, to remain under. That's the idea. You say, what, like, what's the big, big deal about that? Why are you taking me on this Greek lesson, Dan? Well, when afflictions come, when these everyday trials and hardships enter our lives, what happens? We start to feel the pressure, right? We can feel the weight coming down on us. And for a while, we do our best to bear up under it. We try not to let our knees buckle and we do our best to, to stay strong, to stand firm. But let's just be honest. What is the thing we most want to do when afflictions come? We want to get out from under it, right? I, I don't want that pressure. I don't want that, that trial, that hardship. We want to bail. I, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know parenting was going to be this hard. I didn't know marriage was not always going to be easy. I didn't know this job was going to be crappy. I didn't know life was so hard. I, I thought the Christian life was supposed to be just eternal blessing. What's going on here? And listen, the worst possible decision we can make in the face of affliction is to quit. That's the very thing we want to do. That's, that's our natural bent. That's our natural tendency when we feel the pressure. Listen, if we cut and run every time a difficult circumstance comes, we forfeit what God wants to accomplish in us. Hear me. Every good thing God wants to pour into my life comes through remaining under, through persevering. This is the funnel through which all Christian virtue flows. I'm not telling you anything you don't know when I say life's hard, right? We're, we're all living that on a daily basis. It, it's tough to endure, to, to have unwavering perseverance when the, the storms of life are raging around us or even inside of us. And, and I'm aware from conversations I've had with many of you and through the prayer requests that I read and pray for each week that you faithfully write down on the Connect folders, thank you for doing that, that I'm aware that many of you right now are in the thick of it. And there's afflictions of all kinds that are like punching you in the gut. Friends, don't give up. Don't give up. Hardships are meant to work for us, not against us. That's why James in some very well-known words says that we should count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James says trials produce steadfastness and steadfastness produces maturity. When we remain under in the face of affliction, God uses that experience to make us more like Jesus. It's evidence of gospel growth. It's evidence of his transforming work in our lives. 
And I could, I could share any number of illustrations about the power of perseverance, but I, I just love this testimony from the diary of John Wesley. John Wesley was the great Methodist preacher from the 1700s. And this is just a snapshot as he recorded his days. All right, listen to this. Sunday, May 5th, a.m., preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. That's a hard crowd, eh? P.M., preached in St. John's, deacon said, get out and stay out. The next week, preached in St. Jude's, can't go back there either. The next week, preached in St. Somebody Else's, deacons called special meeting and said I couldn't return. That evening, preached on the street, kicked off the street. The next week, preached in a meadow, chased out of meadow as bull was turned loose during the service. <laughs> Makes our services pretty tame, right? The next week, preached at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Wow, like, was he a glutton for punishment? I mean, this is just a, this is just a brief snapshot of his hardships. And I mean, he continued to minister for decade after decade in the face of relentless opposition. Because he was kind of pushing back against many of the regulations of the established Church of England. He was, he was seen as a dangerous threat. And so the clergy, they denounced him. They denounced his fellow Methodist leaders in sermons and in print. And, and at times, mobs actually physically attacked them. And yet Wesley persisted in spreading the good news of salvation in Christ. And it's estimated that during his lifetime, he wrote, this is mind-boggling, he rode some 250,000 miles, mostly on horseback. And he preached more than 40,000 sermons, often two or three a day. Now, how and why would he do that? How and why would he do that? Because the gospel had gripped his heart and his life, and it was, it was bearing the fruit of unwavering perseverance. He wasn't going to give up. And that's what Paul sees in the lives of the Thessalonians. They are committed to remain under, to press on in spite of adversity. How about you? How about you? Is your perseverance unwavering? Are you steadfast as a follower of Jesus Christ? And if that's a struggle, if, that's, if you'd admit and say, I, I, don't, I, I don't think I'm there. I've got a long way to go. I would just invite you to ask the Lord to expand your capacity to hupomene, to remain under. Ask him to help you to keep from throwing in the towel. But listen, don't pray that prayer unless you're ready for him to answer it. Because perseverance comes through hardship. God will certainly be with you in the storm, but you can't learn what he needs you to learn without experiencing the wind and the rain and the waves. Some lessons have to be learned in the moment. Maybe this is an area of maturity in your life. You'd say, I, I have a persevering spirit. Thank the Lord. I have a persevering spirit. Through much adversity, God is, is cultivated. He continues to cultivate that unwavering perseverance. Take some time to thank the Lord for that, the way he's forming you, the way he's forming others that you see that in. He's shaping you into the image of his son. He's bringing about life change. Unwavering perseverance is a wonderful evidence of gospel growth. 
Last Monday, I attended a memorial service for a woman named Carrie Langman. And some of you were there at that service and others of you were at the visitation on Sunday. And many of you know Carrie personally. Her parents, uh, Rod and Elaine Duff and her sister Kellyanne are active members here at Harvest. And Carrie passed into the presence of Jesus at the age of 48 and she left behind her husband and two sons. She had suffered for well over a decade with the ravaging effects of cancer and undergone many surgeries and treatments. And I never had the privilege of meeting Carrie personally. I feel like I've gotten to know her by praying for her. Her, you know, requests were in the connect folder. And, and I also feel like I got to know her some by just hearing the remembrances of her shared at that, at that service. And I've been thinking about that all week. And what struck me as I've reflected is on her life and on what we heard and was shared is how her life demonstrated gospel growth. In fact, all three of the evidences that we've talked about this morning from 2 Thessalonians 1, all three of those were part and parcel of her life. By all accounts, Carrie had a flourishing faith, one that was founded on the unchanging promises of God's word. She had a relationship with the Lord that was rich and that was meaningful. She had an abounding love for her family, her friends, everyone she met, a love that just poured out of her because of the love that she had experienced from her Savior. And boy, Carrie was the picture of unwavering perseverance. She, she bravely endured her sickness with an optimistic spirit right to the very end. And it just moved me to gratitude for this life well lived. For this, this person in whose life there was evidence of God's transforming work. I ask you, is he doing the same in your life in the lives of those around you? Let's pray about that together. God, I thank you that you don't just save us and set us on a shelf, but God, that you go about your sanctifying work in our lives moment by moment that you're never done with us. We praise you for every evidence of gospel growth and we just ask that you'd be faithful to complete the good work that you've begun until the day of Christ Jesus. God, would you help us to value the things that you value? God, help us to see life not just from an earthly, temporal perspective, but would we see life from a heavenly, from a spiritual, from an eternal perspective? God, thank you that what matters most is lives changed by you. God, you have done great things. You are continuing to do great things. You will do great things. We believe it by faith. In our lives, in this church, in the lives of those around us, God, we pray that, we ask for that. We worship you because of it. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, the one who does great things. Amen.